Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give you in the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall take no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you fill us up, provide us with bread to eat, give us uh, nourishment from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we get into the word this morning, I kind of wanted to begin with a general layout of my hopeful direction that this year will take. Uh, when it comes to the preaching ministry of Old Goshenhofen. But uh, ever being mindful of Proverbs 16.9, which states a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Uh, first, when it comes to the preaching ministry here at Old Goshenhofen, um, now on the second and fourth evenings of every month, we will have an evening service. Uh, in here at 6 o'clock, though, maybe, hopefully, as the weather warms, uh, we'll start to venture out in the springtime, in the summer, even to evening services out in the Grove. Uh, that's a hope of ours. 
And so um, in those sermons, we hope to provide topical sermons at times, sometimes sermons from the Heidelberg, sometimes maybe companion sermons to the morning message, but uh, to use those in that way. As for us, as we march through Scripture, uh, I really hope to be in four books this year, uh, which means we're going to do what we are doing here today, which is at times skip over portions of text. Uh, we, when we were last here, we were at the end of chapter 20. We were at the end of the Ten Commandments, and we just heard uh, from the people of God that basically... After hearing the commandments, they tell Moses, Moses, and this is a very quick summary of a larger sermon, Moses, we don't want to hear from God anymore. You can speak to us, that's okay, but you be our mediator. Um, and that section starts what's called traditionally in, in theological circles, the Book of the Covenant. And the Book of the Covenant really began in chapter um, 20 at the end there and ends on this passage here today though it's further explored in other books of the Bible uh, Deuteronomy and elsewhere so we're gonna skip over sections because I'd like to be in Exodus this year I'd like to be in Leviticus this year I'd like to be in numbers this year and then when we approach Christmas I'd like us to begin the gospel of Luke and so to, in order to do that, we have uh, a long march through the wilderness uh, in front of us before we get to the Gospel of Luke. So that is uh, a quick summary. So here we are. And as we're in this, as we've taken a jump, there's now a question of what did we miss? What did we miss from the end of the commandments uh, where the people of God are, are basically fearful to hear from God and Moses acts as that mediator to, to walk into the void, to walk into the gap? What we started to hear is an unraveling and an unpacking of some of the laws of uh, the Lord, some of his laws for this New Testament community. And really in these Laws, we see something that runs countercultural to the American individualistic experience of the church. The, the American ideal of, you know, I just need to do my own study at home. I don't really need to be a part of a community. We actually see that God is not looking for a faith of individuals, but individuals living out in community. And he starts to set up laws that help bless a larger community. He sets up laws, for instance, this is the first society in world history at this point that says not only can women commit adultery, but also men can commit adultery. Look at that. We kind of take that for granted. Though I, I think like the moral compass of America is no longer taking that for granted. But uh, we kind of take that for granted that yes, both men and women can commit adultery. This was kind of a novel idea when we're in the wilderness. You think that's a good law? Well, you, you think that the book of the covenant is wise, it's good. Uh, you had realities where women could inherit. Women had property rights. The book of Ruth is about this. That, that women, that Naomi, even though she had left the land, she had left and gone to Moab, 
she had certain inalienable rights as a citizen of Israel, as a part of the congregation, that she could come years down the road, decades down the road, and have claim to certain protections, claim to certain, a certain degree of land. That comes from some of the, what we're skipping over. Ideas of worker rights, of having days off, of actually getting a full year off, of not being able to be in perpetual contracts that you can't get out of. That comes from the Book of the Covenants. And so there's all these wonderful things that we have kind of uh, are jumping over at the moment. When we get into Leviticus, we'll start to kind of look at some of these kinds of things. But the, the idea and the illustration is, I have saved you from Egypt. I have saved you from slavery. I have saved you, and so you're going to look different. You're going to look, you're going to be countercultural. You're not going to look like the Canaanites when it comes to, for instance, your sexual ethics. You're not going to look like the Canaanites when it comes to your ethics on charities or on charity or giving or gender. And very much today, the, the call is the same with the church. We're told to still be countercultural. We're not supposed to look like the world when it comes to sexual ethics, on ethics, on charity, on giving, on gender. This pattern, as we're, we're going to see, is a pattern that God always gives to his people after he saves them, that he wants us to stand apart from the world, to be a distinct from the world. And so what is at the heart of our passage today is that it's going to show us the early warnings by God of how easy it is for our loyalty as God's people to be compromised and challenged by the culture we're in the midst of. I mean, after this sermon, for instance, we are going to have a moment of the confession of sin. And maybe you've never thought about it this way, but the confession of sin is our admission that we're all compromisers. That every time we gather, we're admitting the fact, you know, I haven't lived up to my word. I haven't lived up to the word, more importantly, my Lord and Savior. I haven't lived up to the deeds that he has called me to do, the life that he has called me to live. I am a hypocrite. I have been compromised. My life has been compromised, and I need to confess that compromise in the midst of the congregation. And, and in the confessing of that, both corporately and individually, we then hear that assured word. That assured promise from the word of God that says, don't worry, my love is still upon you. That's, that's kind of the pattern here, but, but in this passage today, it's, it's really God pleading for us to desire to be individuals, desire to be a community that does not compromise. And so we look first at verse 20. And we see an angel being talked about as being with the people yet again. This is the third time this angel has been directly referenced in the book of Exodus. 
The first time was the angel was in the midst of the burning bush. We don't know if he was the burning bush. It's questionable. And then we saw him at the parting of the Red Sea. We didn't know this at first, but in chapter 14, it makes clear that they had been following this angel all around. And all of a sudden, when they get to the point where they're at the Red Sea and the angel had led them there, he goes to the back and he becomes the rear guard from the armies of Egypt that sought to destroy God's people and the people of God. He was the rear guard and, and, and basically the angel so protected the people of God that everybody that he wanted the waters, uh, the separation of the waters to protect and to go on through to the promised land on the other side, they were protected. And then he made sure that those he was at war with were crushed by the same watery judgment. And so that was the second time we saw the angel. And now we see him a third time. And, I, and I've been reading Jewish commentaries along the way as I do this study. And it, it was fascinating on, in this section. Because... As I've been reminding people in this series, for instance, in passages like Jude chapter, verse 5, Jude verse 5, who does Jude tell us in the New Testament was really leading the people into the promised land? I got to hear it. Who? Jesus. Okay. Well, is, that a, is that a name to be like Jesus? What's Jesus? Jude. Grew up in the same household, tells us in verse 5, Jesus did that. Jesus led them. But these Jewish commentators, they don't know what to do with this angel. And because they, the word angel here is, the messenger word picked, is a word that could be a, a spiritual entity, but it technically could be a human too, but it's definitely not Moses. So who is this spiritual, almost human presence kind of? Figure, who is this figure? And we just say, we know, it's Jesus. It's, it's, it's the Lord our God. I had a, a, a great time just kind of uh, reading through uh, commentaries. John Calvin, John Owen, J.I. Packer, uh, um, and others. They're all like, yeah, that's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is leading these people. And... It's fascinating because here we are, and this angel is now going to lead them in the wilderness. And we're being told, actually, some amazing things about this angel. Let me just read verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now that second half, when we think of somebody going to prepare a place for us, who do we think of? In the New Testament, Jesus. chapter 14 of John, we think of Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. Notice here, in this passage, we have similar language. I'm going to bring you to a place I prepared for you for. And so there's this unfailing spiritual presence 
and, and in one sense it linked with this glory cloud. And the glory cloud, of course, represents the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And they are preparing this people for the place that God has prepared for them. Here is God at the end of this uh, first look at the book of the covenant. And he's laid out, started to lay out the law before the people of God. And what God is saying to them now is saying, walk forward in faith to the wilderness that lies ahead of you. Because there is a promised land in front of you. And when you get there, you'll see that I have a place picked out for you. But let's look at this in a literal sense. Of this first generation, of which might have been over a million, depending on, on what you do with the numbers, might have been over a million people. How many people will actually make it to the physical promised land at the end of the wilderness experience? Anybody know the number? It's two. <coughs> Caleb, Joshua, we've got two witnesses. For everyone else, what happens in the wilderness? They die in the wilderness. They die in the wilderness. Here they have this, this wonderful promise. I go to prepare a place for you. And they're expecting, oh, that place is going to be, we're going to be there, and we're going to be there in like 40 days. We're going to be there in no time. And little do they know, that's not really, I think, the place that the heart of this passage has them looking forward to. We'll see more on that as we move along in the text. But also, this language of I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if you want to know more about this, I've preached on John 14 before. You can go in the sermon archive and hear more about this. But that language is marital engagement language. That language is the ancient Israelite language for like, you know, going to Jared, going to K Jewelers or what have you. That is when you go to prepare a place for someone, that's something that you did when you were engaged to someone. Because what you did is you got engaged and then you had to return to your father's abode and you would build off a little room there and in that room that would be a place for your bride to meet you and so here even in uh, the early forms of, of exodus we have hints and allusion to that grand narrative that harper caught last time i preached uh, she met me at the back of the church because the point, a large point of that sermon was we're getting ready for a wedding. So little Harper comes up. We've got to get ready for a wedding. Yes. Yes, Harper, you got it. Getting ready for a wedding. Here is, in Exodus 23, this allusion to the idea that God is going forward to prepare a place for us so that we can dwell with him just as a bride would dwell in one sense with the bridegroom. Amazing connections here that are going on. And so what should we do in the interim? What should we do as this God goes before us and prepares a place for us? Verse 21 and 22 help, us, help tell us what we should do in the week. It says you need to give God's 
voice, special, or as the ESV translates it, careful attention in the wilderness. Basically, you need to give his word careful attention in the wilderness. Are you living your life giving careful attention to God's word in the wilderness? You know, God stripped me of a lot of idolatry I used to have for sports. But there's still one team that remains. What's the team, honey? My, the, the San Diego Padres. The San Diego Padres are, still remain as part of my sports idolatry. And I have this, like, app on my phone that gives me, like, news articles without all the ads and stuff. And, and it can notify me whenever the, a new article is written about the Padres. So that in the big expanse of the World Wide Web, anytime the Padres do anything, which this offseason's been very disappointing, and, and that's just the life of a Padres fan, it's disappointment in the wilderness, uh, that, that I get to know right away. Does that really help my walk? If, if like, next week I told you, you know, I, I've stopped listening to the Padres and I've stopped following all the words of the Padres and all the articles of the Padres are going to be like I don't know how you're going to be a pastor here I don't know how you're going to do it would, would you feel that way no you'd be like you'd, you'd be better off for it and I would be better off for it but idolatry is strong um, what I'm saying here is this when verses 21 and 22 are telling us that we need to really be careful with the word of God, and notice that it's the voice of who that we need to be careful to listen to. It's of this angelic kind of messenger individual, the second person of the Trinity, that we need that in our life. We need to be in the book of the Bible. We need to be in the word. We need to hear the words of God. We need to be in the scriptures. We need to be saturated with the word. We need to be washed in the word. We need to be covered and, and, and held fast in the wilderness with the word of God. And we get away from that. We act like getting into the word like that is the job of somebody like myself. But you don't really have to do that yet. Here in this passage, it's saying, hey, you want to be prepared for the place that I'm preparing for you? Make sure you hold fast to my word. Make sure you don't look like the nations. Don't, don't get sucked in by their words. Look to my words. Look to my teaching. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to have different sexual ethics. It's going to have different uh, ethics of, of the workplace, of giving, of all these things, of gender, of all this stuff. I know it's going to have that. And I know it's going to be hard to hold on to that. But hold on to that because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this is how you prepare to go to that place. To be someone who is engaged with me relationally. <clears throat> and that can be a very hard message for us to hear. Because we are pluralistic Americans who have made tolerance the highest God and, and here God is telling his people 
who have ears to hear, I don't want you to tolerate everything. You know, here there's a, there was that story in the news during Christmas time, a satanic temple erected a shrine to Satan in the Iowa, I guess, state house or something. And a Christian ripped it down. And now he faces up to a year in jail for it. And there's an idea of the broader society, of the culture of the world, that how dare that Christian do that? And yet, at least here, our God says to us, we, we want to be clear that we don't, we don't find things like that good. We don't find like the idea of blanket tolerance of everything to be the guiding ethic of who we're called to be. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking specifically of that individual's actions. I think there, there could have even possibly been a better way. But, but I'm also not saying that it could have been of a spirit. But the guiding ethic of our world says, hey, even if you tore down a satanic shrine in a state house, you should go to jail for a year. And yet our guiding ethic as Christians says, whatever his word says, we honor that. We hold to that. We don't care what you say in regards to what he says. He, he supersedes you. We need his word in the wilderness. Your word gives us temptation to stray from his word. That's, that's really what God is getting at here in this moment. And it's because we're a part of a different kingdom. You know, people say, oh, America was a Christian nation. I don't know if I ever feel that way. But it was a nation that at one time respected Christian values. But regardless, the kingdom we're a part of is a kingdom as guided by the word of our Lord. And we no longer, uh, and the word of our Lord sometimes in the wilderness is not received well, as we're seeing in our own day. You know, the world will try to get you to compromise in the wilderness. It will try to get you to serve anything but God in the wilderness. And that's why, in one sense, again, our confession of sin is a mission that we have compromised as we leave these doors and yet come back here again. The world wants you to live as one who hasn't been saved with no hell below us, and above us only sky, it wants you to imagine a world like that. And it wants you to live for today. Not for the God who goes before us, not for the God who goes to prepare a place for us, but just to live for today. That's the best the world can imagine. That's, that's the hymn of the 60s era that has now come to fruition and, and has ideas of now free love that have exploded in later generations that are just utterly disgusting when before the presence of, God's, of God and his holy word. And it's not to say that things out in the world that are tempting the world are not, unfortunately, sometimes sins and struggles we have within our own heart. But still, as we await the place that our Lord goes to prepare for us in this wilderness, we're not to be compromisers. We're not to strive to do that. We're rather to strive to be faithful to the word of the Lord. 
God wants us to be one God kind of people with no alternative allegiances, and he will bless us. And as we can see from verse 25 and 26, and, and as we start to kind of round to a close here, for the faithful, every step in this present wilderness, the Lord blesses us. And really, especially in verse 26, there are some commentators that just sort of skip over. There was one guy, I've loved his commentary all through this series. He's written two commentaries on Exodus, actually. And in both commentaries, he just skipped over verse 26. He didn't even want to touch it. It's a difficult verse because it seems to imply at first reading that God kind of does a tit-for-tat kind of promise uh, to prosper those who are faithful. And there is an element of truth in that. We don't want to push so far back on prosperity preaching and prosperity gospels that we don't recognize that this life has both mountaintops that the Lord leads us to and valleys. Um, He's the God that calls us to suffer, but also sometimes he calls us to celebration. He calls us to feast days. He calls us to times that are just wonderful times. But let me read back these verses because I think in part these verses are hard to understand because you're reading them in the English and you're missing the y'all of the southern draw. You're missing the plural. And so let me show you what happens in these verses. Y'all, you all, including me, shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your... Now God shifts to the first person. He's talking to one individual. And he's going to be talking to one individual until verse 31 at the very end when he says your again. He's talking to a singular person. We've lost the plural. He will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. Once again, we've lost the plural. None shall miscarry or be barren in your, speaking now to one person, land. I will fulfill the number of your, one person, days. And the rub here is, there are, there are passages as we get to numbers and such as the march of the wilderness that for a little while at least, at certain moments, at certain times, things seem to be getting better for God's people. And yet, there's never really a time where verse like 26 seems to be fully fulfilled as it's illustrated. And I would say the reason for that is because the promise, the prophecy, was of, to a single individual. And a single individual's land in which in that promised land, in that place where he has bread, where he has water without price, where he has his presence, the place that he has prepared for us, that in that place, miscarriage and death will be no more. And so who do you think God was speaking to in the singular there? He was speaking to the presence of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, this, this manifestation, the holy heavenly host. That's my submission on that. And so, and just look at all of this language. It's basically God talking with God, our one God talking 
in to uh, himself. And this is something that basically we have seen in the scriptures. Uh, for instance, Jesus, his big stump verse was in uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, where he used that to talk to the Pharisees and, and to confuse them because it says in that psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But basically, in the midst of this conclusion of the, the book of the covenant, I want you to notice this final thing as we wind to a close. God is holding up this heavenly figure with divine authority that we need to listen to. And yet from the same God, as he talks about this divine authority that we need to listen to his words, he keeps using the I form. He says, for instance, in verse 20, I will send an angel before you to protect you as you travel to the place both place I have prepared. 22, I will be an enemy to your enemies and oppose those who oppose you. I will wipe them out. Verse 23, I will bless your bread and your water. I will remove sickness from among you. I will not allow miscarriage or infertility. I will give you a full lifespan. I will cause confusion amongst all the people against whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run from you. Now, to a Jew, this would sound crazy, but here we have, or they can't understand it, but here we have the one God speaking of his plural majesty, and he's telling us about the promised land to come. And it's not the promised land of the mortal, the physical earth, that for those people, they weren't going to enter into that land, but it's the greater promised land, the one that Abraham, that Isaac, that Jacob, that J Joseph have uh, longed for and yearned for, that they are getting towards. And why this is important is this. We as humans tend to want to avoid suffering in the wilderness. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid uncomfortable situations. We want to avoid the road less traveled because the road less traveled is hard. That's why the, the less traveled road, it, it, it just becomes more difficult. We prefer to be comfortable. If we're not comfortable, we get angry. If we get frustrated, we start complaining. We start pointing fingers. We start, stop caring about things like community. We become individualistic. We basically become the classic member of the American church. We forget that we're asked to be more in the wilderness as we await the one who comes. God wasn't saying to the congregation of Israel, hey, get on the works treadmill, and if you do that, nothing bad will ever happen to you. You won't even lose a baby to miscarriage. That's not what is in view in the Hebrew here. No, actually, what God was trying to make clear with those with ears to hear it is that how we walk, how we live in this present wilderness has an implication in the promised land to come, that it matters in the economy of the place that is being prepared for us, the place where there will be no more death, there will be no more tears, there will be no more hardship and ache. Every day matters. And this becomes beautiful because we get discouraged about our life, we get discouraged about our, the wilderness walk, we get discouraged as we, as we walk down the roads in our life, we don't want to walk down we worship a God who makes clear every day matters. Every day matters. 
We have value and we have opportunity in every day to serve and love God and to do things for his kingdom as we walk to the promised land. I'm going to close maybe with this. An illustration of disappointment my wife and I recently had. We were driving back from sunny Florida, and it wasn't like great, profound disappointment, but we were listening to an audiobook. And in the audiobook, it was, it was J.R. Tolkien writing his editor his copyist in 1951 and describing the fullness of all his Middle Earth writings. The fullness of really the three books that summarize uh, the, 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 the entire series in the Middle Earth. And in that book, it's a, it's a book that I'm sure many of us love. It has so many wonderful themes that connect to the gospel, that, that relate to us in our time in the wilderness, that show sacrificial love, that show uh, wonderful things and, and, and principles of the Christian faith. But he wrote this about the book. He basically said that he was grieved over the fact that when he looked at the corpus of all English writings, that there was nothing of true excellence, nothing that truly uh, reached to the highest levels of writing. And he basically said, this is in part because of the fact that a lot of writings uh, the most famous of which, and he references, is the King Arthur f stories, is too Christian. It's too connected to Christian themes. It's too connected to, to Christian ideals. It's too connected to the idea of faith. And because of that, it couldn't be a truly great story. And then actually he endeavored to write a story that truly would have a heart of the English. A heart for England. Going back even to suggest to his pagan, the pagan roots of England. And tell ideas there and purposely try to avoid the Christian story. And I was so discouraged by that because I, I've kind of blanketly thought Tolkien you know, was a believer. And I hope he was a believer. But he didn't understand what life was like in the wilderness, if he was. Everything of value, everything that matters that we ever do needs to be connected to his story. The reason why anybody cares about Tolkien's book is because in it, he's got an essence of the greatest story in it. We don't want to leave here and just surrender to compromise. We don't want to leave this place and be compromisers. 
Now it's going to happen again, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to have to confess our sins again. But when we leave here, what we need to understand is the heart of our story is a story where we listen to his word, we listen to the one who goes before us, who redeems us, and blesses us, and has prepared a place for us. We need his story, we need his words to be incorporated into our life so that we can more rightly imitate our Lord and Savior. Amen?